0: This episode of the jiu Times podcast is brought to you in part by No Judges Needed BJJ Apparel and Lavender Lane CBD Products. You can use the promo code JJT for 20% off your first order at No Judges Needed and the code JJTimes20, all uppercase, last two items are numerical, for 20% off your first order of CBD products. Thank you very much for sticking with us. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Jiu-Jitsu Times podcast. I am your host, Kevin Bradley, joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Kevin Gallagher. Today, joined by yet another incredibly accomplished guest, multiple-time Pan-American champion, one of the founding members of American Top Team and Black Belt under Ricardo Laborio, Wade Rome. Mr. Rome, thank you so much for joining us, man. How are you doing? Wow, that, that was a great introduction. Thank you, man.
1: To- he's, good, he's good. at that. that. he makes he makes anybody look like an all star, man.
0: <laughs> but I wanted well, to- I myself. I wanted.
2: To- I was cheered for myself. But yeah.
0: That- <laughs> I mean, hey, look, like the the credentials speak for themselves, man. I mean, you've been around the town. Like you, you've been at this shit for a while. I've I've been a black belt longer
2: than most people have been training. So.
1: Yeah, that says a lot too, because that's, I mean, there, back when you were training, like there wasn't. The idea of having a black belt, particularly when you got your black belt, the idea of of being a black belt was like if you were a black belt, like you were Jesus, you you walk on water. You know, (laughs) this wasn't one. If you if you were lucky enough to even have a black belt of structure or have a black belt that lived in the area, like it was like, oh, my God, like this guy has a black belt coming today. Like if you saw purple belts and brown belts, it was a big thing back in back in your time.
2: Yeah, they were just (laughs) so few and
1: far between at that time. It was amazing. So let's get right into it. And again, I. I i have been a fan of yours for a while. I can remember when I when I first heard your name, it was on a on one of Josh's Sapatura tournaments. And uh you were competing um I think uh in, in 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 an absolute uh bracket. And uh I remember like hearing about this guy, Wade Rome. And I'm like, who the fuck? And I you know, and I didn't know I didn't you know, I was still young I was still purple, but I was supposed to compete in that, but I hurt my ankle or some shit like that came out. And I remember looking at the bracket and thinking, Wade Rome, oh wow god, he's like D one wrestler. You know, I fucking like uh, old uh, Pan American champion, Nogi champion, all this other shit like that, and then like you know night that I got to meet you. So, like you, you, you've got quite a bit of experience in the grappling arts, man.
2: Yeah, I've probably had—I don't know—at some point I try to tally it up. I know it's over 600 competitive grappling matches. I, I don't—I don't know the exact number. But like I—I I lo- I lose count, but it's definitely over 600.
0: So, so Jesus,
1: what is it about? What is it about
2: grappling arts that's drawn you to it? So I was a, I was a high school wrestler and then a college wrestler. I wrestled at the university of Illinois. Um, probably what drew me to grappling initially was my cousin was a, a, Tennessee state champion, uh, in wrestling. And he was like my idol. He was, you know, three or four years older than me, maybe five years older than me. And, and I was always just like, wow, he's, he's so cool. You know, like I, I just, I wanted to be like him. And, um, then i met a few other wrestlers and guys that wrestled a friend of mine david Mashad, whose son actually fought for the million dollars he made it to the finals of the bellator championship um so he, he i met him and and his brother gary crandall who just passed away not that long ago and um they got me into wrestling and my sophomore year i took second and then i i won it years after that and um went to the university of illinois and wrestled there collegiately that was a tough run. You know, Big Ten is a is a hard division. It's a that's hard real
1: wrestling. You're, you're Big Ten. That's that's real wrestling.
2: Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I, I remember at one point we went to um it was my, my freshman year. I broke the starting lineup finally, and, and so I was starting as a freshman, which was tough to do as well. But um we went to I want to say it was like the Eastern Duels or something along those lines. And I remember getting in the finals of the tournament and um uh I, I ended up winning it. And I came to my coach and I said, you know, I think I'm finally getting this. You know, I think I'm finally getting the wrestling. And he turned to me and he said, No, nah, man, you still suck. We're just outside the Big Ten. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's true, man. Like, you got, you know, it's Big Ten. What is it like? That's um, Illinois. Uh, what's, what are some of the Nebraska? Isn't it Big Ten? Yeah,
2: yeah they are yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, my, my oldest boy, uh, Chase, played uh, football for Nebraska. Yeah. I think it was his freshman year when he signed with them. They were in the Big 12. And I think it was his sophomore year, which would have been 2010. They moved to the Big 10. So you got uh, Nebraska, Iowa, Northwestern, um, Illinois, Wisconsin, Ohio State, Michigan State, Michigan, Penn State, um, Rutgers P- now.
1: Penn State's big ten too. Jesus, I forget. Yeah. I I, I I didn't you know, I went to USF, so that my idea of like collegiate intercollegiate, you know, schooling is just, just a big ten. I don't really it's, it's skewed for me. I don't really get it, but I, I forget about that. But like there you're talking about like some of the real powerhouses of collegiate wrestling from uh, in the Big Ten. Like Penn State's a fucking
2: powerhouse. I think I read I think other than Oklahoma State, I don't think anybody outside the Big Ten has won the NCAA's in like the no. last 20 years or something like that. Yeah,
1: Iowa, Iowa State. That's ridiculous.
2: Iowa State's Big Twelve, and I think, and they are Oklahoma State. I, I don't remember seeing the statistic, um, but but some outside of the Big Ten, there's been very very few teams that have won it ever. So yeah.
0: now uh, Wade, you, you've definitely got uh, the build and the frame that would uh, preclude you to a lot of different sports. What pointed you towards wrestling over something like football or hockey or something like that?
2: So I played football when I was young, and um, I always felt like counting on other people was hard. (laughs) That's life, right? Counting on other people, you're like, oh yeah, whatever. I'll just do it myself. Um, Oh my god! (laughs) I think the individualism—like you succeeded on your own merits, and you lost on your own merits—and there's nobody else to blame. You know, it's just just the way it is. Um, You know, I I think it's one of those things where we had a really successful football program when I was in high school. We won, uh, like. Three, two state championships, played for three. And when those guys left and the coach left, we got a new coach in. And I think people just thought we were going to win by showing up and having a, you know, a T on the side of our helmet. And it's <laughs> not the way it works, you know. You, you've you got to be individual. And I think, you know, placing second my sophomore year in the state and having worked so hard, I just figured out this is where my focus is going to be. You know, I've got some state championships I can put behind me here. And and I, I just love it. I like the individual component of it and the individual challenge. And just like you know, grappling, wrestling, anything—I view that like as a human chess match. I, I love that. I love the human chess match. I think it's so much fun to compete that way.
0: Everything I learned, you see, because my dad was really big into wrestling up in New Jersey uh, in high school. I think he was captain of the team his uh, his senior year, and I—he I, never really talked much about wrestlers. You know, like his that time of his life, he said it right. was like you know, only the grind. He was committed to just making weight, doing his thing they never really went into what it was like being a wrestler. One day I found his uh yearbook and I flipped to his uh picture and senior quote and I think his senior quote pretty much summed up everything you could really know about wrestlers and it was wrestlers eat their dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's about it's true man. True. It's kind of true. He, to- he told me later he got in a lot of trouble for that.
1: But <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I <I'm> like- <laughs> I think that wrestling is in Coming from, I wrestled in high school myself too. So, you know, it's there's constantly a level of competition, even just to make the team. You know, you yeah. you, you have a slot on team, and it's different than other team sports because a lot of times, you know, when you're the quarterback or your starter, you're just you're just the starter. Yeah, there's competitive means to, to that will take you out of the slot if you don't perform. But in wrestling, like you're 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 only as good as you continue to maintain your slot because if you lose. In a, in, a, in a competition, or you lose an opportunity for for a wrestle off. Someone says, "Hey, I want to take your spot." Like you can come up and wrestle you guys and have a wrestle off. And if he wins, you're in that slot. You know, so you have to constantly grind. You have to constantly be on your game. You have to constantly compete with you know yourself to be able to maintain that slot.
2: Yeah, it's it, it really is, and, and you know, there are so many facets and so much discipline that's that's required in wrestling. Just not, you know, not only the physical preparation of being in shape, but the weight cutting. Which I, I think has actually gotten better. I think people are cutting less weight, at least for college wrestling now, than they used to. High school wrestling is definitely the case. Um, I know Ben Askren who was one of my students for a long time. He's a big proponent of guys like wrestling at their close at their own weights or close to it. Max Askren, his brother, uh wrestled one ninety-seven for the first couple of years in college, and I just kept begging him, like, you're walking around at like eighty-six, one eighty-seven, wrestle one eighty-four. You'll you know, you're you're big enough to to win the national championship there. And when he did his last year, he won it. And um, you know, he, but he was actually competing up a weight class just for the strength of the team. Um So there's, there's so many components that go into that, you know, and um physical being in shape, you know, the weight management, um, you know, going out there and wrestling every single time for. This
1: is this is post-COVID, baby. We have, we got dogs. We got kids. We got wives. He's bring them on in. We make it part of the show.
2: <laughs> he's, be, he's being ignored. He doesn't like it. <laughs>
0: Well, we are a dog friendly show, sir. Yeah, you, girl, you, tell, you tell. Uh, is it a boy or a girl? He's a boy. He's a boy. Oh, tell that little guy. He's more than welcome to just be there the whole time. I had had uh, 2
2: I had yeah. two. I had two of them. Uh, one passed away at 15 years old, and one passed away at 13. Oh, wow. A oh, man. of mine who Carlos Diaz, uh, who's also a black belt, he's also a black belt under under uh, Ricardo Laborio, uh, big big time member of American Top Team. Uh, his cousin. Oh, I got my dogs from him like 18, 19 years ago. So those two dogs that I had that passed away, their dad is his great, great grandfather. So it's the same bloodline, you know, which I thought was cool. So when I had the opportunity to get him, I was like, yeah, I'll take him for sure.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Let's, let's talk a little bit
1: about weight cutting because, you know, for people that don't really understand what weight cutting is all about, they think of it as like, why the hell would you do that to yourself? Like, and I think a lot of, uh, particularly my competitor because i say that all the time too I, I agree with you like i agree with ben asker i like you know I, I hardly ever cut weight and, it, and i think it's because what happens is particularly when you have guys that aren't really as understand aren't really as trained and aren't really as experienced in doing so your competition becomes so much focused focus so your focus becomes figuring out how to make weight instead of figuring out how to compete at your highest levels and and and, and work on your game like what are, what are some of the, the, the reasons why weight cutting, like, started in the first place?
2: You know, I, huh, it, it's funny that, that you ask that because I, I think most wrestlers ask that question as well. Like, how the hell do we get in this situation, you yeah. know? And, and what happens is you get big guys that are dropping down weight classes. So size-wise, they're much larger individuals. And once that starts, it's kind of a vicious cycle, you know, where you, you literally, like Kevin said, you know, you got wrestlers eating their own because – they're, they're they're literally chasing each other s- trying to match size weight you know strength level etc and so I, I think that's the way that that cycle started also i think there are only so many weight classes slotted and there's only one starter at each weight class guys will if they believe they can make a specific weight class or right. easier weight class for them to get a starting job at right. they're going to go in and try to wrestle that weight class so you know i know when i went to college i was probably they recruited me as a 177 pounder and I think I think my senior year I wrestled in the finals like 184, 185, and the weight class was 189.
1: I can't picture a world where you only weigh 171
2: pounds. <laughs> <when you're skipping. laughs> if I stand up, it's just my lower body now. That's about <laughs> It's my lower body. Um, so, but but you know I was also like 5'10. You know when I got to college by my sophomore year I was like 6'1 and a half. You know like working on 6'2 and uh, you know I was walking around about 230, 235. So now I'm cutting, you know, they've recruited me as a 77 pounder. I've already bumped up and said, I can't make 77 on the Russell 90. And I'm cutting 30, 45 sometimes. I think think by my junior year, I was cutting close to 50 pounds a season just to make 190. But the problems with that are you're taking a huge toll on your body. You're sucking all the fluid out of your body, which really, you know, spikes your injury rate. I, I was constantly, I never had injury problems in my life. But once I started cutting that much weight and you've got that much fluid out of your body, you know, your, your, your joints literally run dry. Your organs are running, you know, below optimal performance. Your recovery time has increased dramatically. And You know, back then, man, they would just feed us drugs. Like whatever we wanted, we just literally, they had a, they had a, a a wall mount cabinet there that we would go and open this cabinet. And there was just, just a a hundred bottles in there of, you know, anything you wanted. I I don't care. Painkiller, uh, amphetamine, you know, uh, uh, Anything that you wanted to sort of help you make weight and manage the injuries and whatever, we just take it. We'd sign our name on a sheet and, uh, and say what we took. And then I guess at the end of the week, the doctor would come in and write scripts to match it. I don't know how <laughs> they did it. On the week, we could do anything we wanted to do. And so, you know, we had chemical help to do that. It was crazy. You know, I, if you see now like one championship, uh, they're doing, they're doing cage side weigh-ins, you know, like you literally weigh in right before you walk to the cage. And I, I think that's, ultimately I'd love to see that be where things go where guys fight at their natural weight. The flip side of that is do the guys who, who are in better shape because they're having to work so hard to make weight, do they put on less stellar performances or by virtue of the fact that they're healthier and and natural, you know, fighting it closer to their natural weight and fighting other people who are closer to their natural weight, is their conditioning actually better when it comes game time? You know, and I, I think there's an argument to be made for that.
1: Yeah, I think the the one problem I have with same day weigh-ins for MMA is this, and, and and the problem comes down to the fact that like, you know, no matter what, no matter what the health factors are, guys are going to try to get that whatever strategical advantage they have, and it means now that they're walking into the cage sucked out and uh, and and depleted instead of rehydrating themselves properly, you know, they're going to still cut the damn weight, and that means that now they're going in with with. With less, uh, you know, water in their brain, which means they're more conducive to concussions and brain aneurysms and all the, the powerful side effects that come come included with uh, with MMA. So, like, it's a tough one, man. They've been trying to solve that conundrum for so long. And I agree with you, man. It's just it's an archaic fucking system that for some reason has carried over for decades and decades. It, just, it should just go away
2: here's a problem too you know when usada came in not long ago and they they basically said listen you can't reconstitute you know you can't rehydrate by by false means by iv or blood doping or anything like that because now they have a test and and they can tell you know i, I i'm not sure what the specific you know marker is or a specific antigen that they can tell that you rehydrated but you know you cannot rehydrate by iv or or uh blood doping or any of those things any longer and that's That's a real problem. Guys are, you know, guys are literally, (laughs) guys are literally, um, you know, now, like you said, fighting with, you know, much less uh, fluid on the brain, on their joints and their organs. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the long-term repercussions of that are. You know, do we see CTE be a problem in in MMA like it is in football? I I don't know. You know, we, it's certainly going to be kinder than boxing because in boxing, you know, with the boxing glove, you're taking away the percussion, but you're never going to see a, a, a MMA fight where uh, you know two guys trade 600 punches right. in, a, in a 15 round fight. No, you cannot simply physically take that many punches with a with an MMA glove. So, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens and when we get some long term studies of the of the impacts of you know weight cutting and and you know blows to the head and whatever with the thinner gloves. I, I don't know. I don't know where that's going to go. But I think
1: I think the other deciding factor in, 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 in the, uh, the, the 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 longevity of MMA and the more safety fighting of MMA is the fact that they don't do a 10 count. You know, like there's something like that you could take somebody like the guys that get knocked out. Like, I don't care who you are, like unless you just get crushed. Like I can give pretty much, you know, any professional fighter in the world, even after they just get leveled. And give them that tanning standing 10 count. And yeah, they're going to be able to pop back up and say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And shake their gloves and get back into the fight. But they are horribly concussed. And they have horrible, horrible brain <laughs> issues that have, that have resulted from that punch. And just giving them that 8 seconds or 10 seconds to recover is not allowing them to recover from the damage under done brain Brendan. You allow them to continue to take a beating. That's where boxing, I think, really goes
2: bad. Man, that's a, that's a really good point. You know, I, I haven't thought about that before. The, the, the lack of a standing you know eight count at yeah. which by the way that standing eight count depending on who the ref administering it is maybe twelve or thirteen yes. seconds, 14 <laughs> right. seconds you know right. um it's interesting to see in some of the title fights how long those standing eight counts get you know
1: but, particularly uh, when I, they don't I, want the, they don't want their guy to lose you know
2: <laughs> boxing's so fucking corrupt bro <laughs> <laughs> I I pray to God that with that that MMA never goes that way but some of these judges' decisions I've seen in MMA. Makes me think otherwise. I mean, Actually,
0: that's been a very, like, uh, I know it's been a problem for a while, but some of the more recent decisions, like, uh, much less so, but Cruz Cejudo was one that people, a lot of people pointed to as being suspect. Uh, well, that was more of a stoppage issue, but um, there have been a lot of people calling on judges recently for sort of really odd scoring in rounds. Uh, what do you have any thoughts on that besides it's a problem or?
2: Yeah, I do. I think so. Here's the problem. You have literally people who know little to nothing to nothing about MMA judging MMA fights. How do you not have you know, they talk about, oh, it's the scoring. It's this. It's that. Well, OK, yes, but it's really more so it's a subjective field. Right. You're taking somebody and you're looking at this uh, fight and you're, you're saying, OK, well, who won that fight? well, why don't we have, like, retired MMA fighters? Why don't we have guys who are, are black belts in jujitsu who understand the ground game and the importance of takedowns and transitions and sweeps? And, right. you know, I think there's far too little emphasis sometimes in fights on solid submission attempts, on sweeps, on ground control, on, you know, uh, transitions from position to position, who dominated. Because, it, again, it's mixed martial arts, guys. It's not just a striking contest. And so much emphasis is put just on the striking and I understand there's an excitement level. If the grappling isn't going well on the ground, the crowd gets antsy, and you know they're trying to entertain people. There's certainly, you know, it's an it's when it all boils down to it, it's entertainment. But the judges should be able to reflect who actually won that fight. I I've sit there. I'm, I'm trying to think of one of them that I saw recently where I literally was like, "Wow, 30? It was actually the, it was actually the, the what was fight it? oh, what was it? Um. There was one fight that was 30-27-30-27 by two yeah. judges. Oh, I knew it was. It was um it was judge one of Jukal's guys. Um man, I'll think of it in just a second. It was it was one of Jukal's guys that, that fought. And I thought he won the first two rounds. He did get dominated in the third round, not to the point of a 10-8, but all three judges scored that like 30-27, 30-27, 29-28 for the other guy. Yeah. And I was like, I
0: for me, the one the the most recent uh, example that caused me to get really annoyed uh, was one that a lot of people had a lot of problems with. It was Jones uh, Reyes, yes, uh, their most yes. recent fight. A lot of people were saying, like, the it wasn't so much the result, even though that was highly contested. It was the fact that Jones won one round by a crazy margin. That people were like, that wasn't that was closer than the scorecards would even tell it. You know, you had everyone on the commentary talking about it and a lot of people were were mad do you how many more uh high profile matches like that like championship matches where judging is wonky do you think we have until real change starts to get made
2: i mean I, here's the thing i think the fighters have to start raising hell you know like we have so many guys are in the ring uh, by the way that was uh anthony Rocco martin and neil magny
0: okay All so right. The judges.
2: I, do, I remember that fight. I, I did watch that fight. It was bad. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah. And the judges scored that fight like I, I now. If you look at some of the statistics as far as the striking in that, like it, Magny definitely from a striking standpoint. And and again, much of them came in the third round. Right. But if you look at that, the statistics kind of bore the fact that Magny won that fight statistically by striking percentages. But if you look at who controlled that fight, the first two rounds, mm-hmm. I thought Anthony Rocker Martin controlled that fight. Certainly to the point that it was not a 30, 27, 30, 27, 29, 28. Right. Um and your point with Jones and Reyes, I had Reyes win in that fight. Me too.
0: I thought like and a lot of people did. And That's it right. felt it felt like
1: bizarre. You know, <laughs> and- I think I think when you talk about the Jones Reyes fight, you, you talk about a little different aspect of skewed judging. Because when you talk about a fight like Jones Reyes, there's the appeal of Jones is the greatest MMA fighter of all time. He's the champion. So like, and that doesn't even have to be a champion. It has to be who the guy that, that the organization is pushing. And believe me, whether it's not, it's not done on a conscious level, but there's subconscious elements to that that judges sway to that. They tend to say a fight around is kind of close, you know, maybe raised it enough, but it's still a champ. It's still our baby. So let's push for him and go and check, check that round in that, in that direction. When it's not a clear cut, clear cut winner and loser. I yeah, think,
2: Glad I'm sorry, Kevin.
1: I think that, that more to the point of what Wade is trying to explain. And, and I think the point that we're trying to get across is the fact that, um, you know, judges need to become more educated in the entirety of what MMA constitutes. Because I'll tell you, like we, I train fighters all the time, I and mean, I work with the UFC fighters all the time. I mean, we got a couple of our, team. I mean, you know, our MMA fighters and all their stuff, like with Matt Arroyo and you know, you know, Matt Frivola, Billy Q, and 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 our younger, uh, you know, beginning fighters. And we tell them straight out, like, you know, if you're on your back, doesn't matter what you're doing, you're losing the round. Losing and the round, it, yes. and it's unfortunate because it's it's a, their it's a strategical approach that takes away so much of what someone's strengths are because if you're a damn good a jiu-jitsu practitioner and for some reason you got taken down and now you're on your back and you're fighting your ass off for submission and you're landing elbows and you're doing all kinds of things and increasing more damage now just because the guy who's some, you know, elite level wrestler took you down which is where you want to be anyway you know he's going to win the round just sitting in your guard and doing nothing which is you know it's a shitty shitty thing i think they're getting better at that and Billy Q's last fight, that second round was a big distinguishing. He he had a similar situation, I think, and he ended up winning that match and winning that fight because of that second round. I think judges are
2: trying to get there, but not all the time. I was, I was worried for Billy um, no, on that was, that because I thought, wow, this is a uh, this this is going to be a close fight. From you know just just based on the way the judges always look at things, we right. could appreciate what was happening and what Billy was doing from the bottom and what he was doing from the top. But some of the more explosive movements of that fight, you know, came from his opponent, and that was you know that was scary. So, um, you know, and
1: me, me and you, we you know, we've watched you know hundreds and hundreds of rounds of MMA. You know what I mean? We, we we've you know, did, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours and the rounds of MMA, and like we've seen that same exact round play out in that way, like over and over and over again. And nine times out of ten, it goes to the guy on top It gets the takedown and, and sits in yep. the guard. That's just the way it goes. That's the way it matches. that's the way rounds are scored because the judges have a set curriculum. Billy explained to me that they changed the 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 points of of importance or the points of like you know, judging in the ufc yeah and i can't remember exactly how he did it but they, they changed it a little bit
2: yes yeah well here's the thing too so um in, in an mma fight you know a, a lot of times the judges come from a boxing background yeah. and do they really understand how like effective a leg kick is right do, does that score because it doesn't seem like it does in so many rounds you know, somebody will pepper the leg for an entire round. The guy's switching his stance. He's coming out in a switch stance the next round. It's obviously been effective. His leg looks like a, you know, a a, a, a raw, you know, raw uh, h- hanging meat there. Man, he's gotten destroyed, but yet that doesn't score. Like, that, that. I've never understood that. And then the
1: other guy lands three four jabs and maybe one cross. And he won because they all oh, they think about who is inflicting the most damage and they don't understand that. Yeah, they, they have to. I think they're trying to. And the problem is, is that. You know, the UFC has no control over the judges. That's the state no, yeah, that's So it's, you know, whatever. This, and you're dealing with, we talked about this on the last podcast or a couple podcasts ago when I had Raleigh Delgado on. And we were talking about, like, what happens is is you get these fight commissions that are just good old boy politics. You know, they get your, oh, my buddy, my buddy Joe, he used to do some, he did a little, he used to watch them fights. He did, he did a little MMA, you know, bring him on in. Like, he could be, be a judge, you know what I'm Guys, guys my, my landscaper, Rory, he, he loves <laughs> right. that, that MMA right. UFC you know, shit. He knows it. (laughs) So they bring these guys on and they don't really know what the hell they're doing because, you know, and and dude, you you know what I know? Try to to convince some old fucking crinkled ass uh, fucking Florida state athletic commissioner that he's doing something wrong. Sports commissioner that he's doing
2: wrong. He's going to be like, he's going to look at you like you're an asshole. It ain't going to happen. What what was really cool is when I moved to uh, Missouri in 2005, um, we we were in South Florida and my wife and I just looked at each other and said like, we can't raise our kids here. You know, not effectively, not (laughs) And um, we moved to Missouri and we were in Columbia and um, they were just starting to bring the commission together to um, make MMA a a legalized, you know, amateur and pro sport um, in Missouri. So um, I originally in Florida, when they when the boxing commission started licensing it, I I had a lot of input in that through Dan Lambert and through the guys at America's top team. But I really got to be instrumental in Missouri. And I think they did a really, really good job. Um, They made some silly some silly rules, you know you have to have 5 amateur fights there before you can go pro. You know, the problem is when you have a Tyron Woodley, when you have a Ben Askren, you know, are you really going to make these guys fight 5 amateur fights before they go pro? Like they're going to kill somebody, you know. Or, they're, or
1: they hit they take they run the risk of, of of blowing out their ACL for some dumb shit for no reason, you know.
2: Yeah, well, and not only that, I mean, finding a good quality amateur opponent that actually wants to fight one of those guys is not easy. Right. You know, it's not an easy thing. And and obviously because of the amateur status, you can't pay that fighter to come in, you know, and, and the commission's all over you. You know, you gotta, you gotta sign an affidavit saying you didn't pay them, that you, you know, that you reimburse them for mileage or expenses, and it has to be at a given rate. I mean, finding somebody that's gonna want, that's willing to come in and take a beating for that is hard. It's a really hard scenario. And right. when you do find somebody that's coming in and taking that kind of beating, aren't you more so risking their health than you're risking Ben or, or Tyrant's health? Like, you know, there should be some exceptions there where you just say, listen, man. It, this guy because of his his pedigree and wrestling and his ability to control a fight and whatever you know he, he doesn't he can forego having five i'm not saying he shouldn't have any amateur fights but five amateur fights is tough to find some of those guys, you
1: know? Yeah, and particularly because the reason why they put those five amateur right, uh, amateur fight, like, you know, stipulations on it's because they wouldn't make sure the guy is is ready and prepared for when it's time for him to go to a professional level. And a guy like Tyron Woodley that wrestled D1 college, like, you don't need to get prepared for that shit. He's ready to fucking go. Like, you put him out, he's going to beat half the pros in, 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 the, in the local fights before he has to even worry about getting an amateur fight in, you know? Like, and I can remember back in the day, like, there was no amateur organization. He's Amateur fight, you just went straight to pro. That's just what I was doing.
0: <laughs> That's but what you there, see a lot. But, but now, a big part of a big part of MMA, at least in America, are those regional circuits and like smaller promotions like King of the Cage that act as like feeder schools for you know Bellator, One FC, UFC. Like there there's there's very few major leagues for this sport. You know, it's it's very much. Almost a monopoly with the UFC, but in terms of like going out and finding talent, these smaller shows are invaluable for you know those big guys.
2: Yeah, we need more of those shows, not less. They're they're fantastic. I I don't know if you guys know this or not, but um, myself, um, uh, Dan Lambert, and um, Jim Varillo, we were the ones who put on World Extreme Fighting. Those were our events back in the day.
1: Oh, I I know that. That's cool, man. Yeah, yeah.
2: And um, you know, that was sort of. Our idea at the time was, hey, you know, we, we want to compete. And I, I actually think, like, you know, it's a pat to ourselves on the back, but I actually think we did a better job than the UFC at the time. If you look at the guys that we had and the, the talent that we were scouting, I mean, we had a lot of guys fighting for us that went on to be fantastic in the UFC. You know, we, we had a lot of – I mean, we had Rodrigo Nogueira early in his career. You know what I mean? Uh, we put up that the matchup between him and Jeremy Horn, which was a fight that if you've never seen, man, you should look that fight up. Um, that was a fantastic fight, which was interesting because Jeremy pulled guard. Like, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's Nagara trying to get him to stand up, and then Jeremy pulling yeah. guard. Um, uh, I, you know, there was some fantastic. Dave Monet was on our shows back then, and Dave was like an unsung hero of the UFC. Man, he was a killer at one point. You know, um, we had so many. Uh, Matt Hughes was on was on WEF back then before. You know, Jesus he was,
0: Christ. Uh,
2: we had a uh, Pele Landy. Um, Pat oh Miller. wow. Pat Militant fought for us. All these guys were fighting for us. You know, um, man, I could I could probably string off 20 names of my old head would recall them. My old brain it, it would put them in my head. But we had so many guys on there. Eve Edwards. Eve Edwards fought for us. Dean Thomas. I mean, we literally were the ones scouting all the big-time talent, bringing them in. And then as the UFC got going, these guys were using those proving grounds. And, and, you know, Monty Cox, um, Extreme Challenge up in Iowa, I mean, if you look at the list of guys that he's had on his show that have fed through into the UFC and into other major organizations, I mean, they're fantastic, man.
0: Like, that's a really, really good. So what exactly was your role in uh, WEF, like, back in the day? So I actually coordinated the logistics and the
2: operations of those uh, events. Um, we had a guy named Jamie Levine who's actually passed away now. He did a lot of the matchmaking. Um, but – I, I you know, we had a three-way split on the expenses between myself, Dan, and Jim, and then I did most of the operational stuff as far as picking the venues, um, you know, setting up all the logistics of the event, uh, making sure the event went out off without a hitch. And um, uh, Dan and Jim primarily handled all the finances of it, as far as ticket sales, you know, making sure all the fighters got paid. You know, just just the logistics. If, if there was a, a term for the two, you know, I was the COO, and they they you know worked from a CFO and investment standpoint. Okay.
0: And now now, just uh, m- one last thing for me is you talked that uh, you built up a, an impressive roster of talent very early on. What does scouting for MMA shows look like in, or MMA promotions look like in the 90s, like in that in those early days? What were like what was your process for finding fighters?
2: Man, mailing and receiving VHS tapes. <laughs>
1: That's insane. Yeah. Honest insane. to
2: God. Honestly, it's crazy
1: I'm, thinking about yeah. the world like that. Yeah, and it,
2: it, You know, I, I always say, like, you know, what a different world it would have been if we would have had the communications that we have now. Um, you know, I don't know if it would have been better or worse. You know, you, you're in a venue, you're in an event. Uh, you know, there, there's a famous um, uh, clip of, of me throwing Travis Fulton out of the ring. And, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was a younger head. I was, I was a hothead at the time. But, you know, the backstory behind that is that my opponent – literally changed three times while I was at the event. So, you know, by the time that Travis actually made it to the event and it wasn't Travis's fault, Travis literally had no cell phone, no anything to call and say, Hey, I've had a problem. I won't be to the event till late. Right. But, they're they're bringing me a cart with a vhs tape and whatever and saying hey this is who you're gonna fight and how you're gonna fight and uh here's the vhs tape on this guy so i'm studying it and then they come back in and tell me oh by the way travis is here we're switching your opponent back now (laughs) you know it's insane um you know that kind of stuff went on constantly but as far as scouting for the talent you were getting vhs tapes coming to you or they'd call you and say hey i got a really good guy i want you to take a look at him um, you know, you would go sometimes in guest judge events, or you would go sometimes in guest scout events, or or even go there and act as a referee for some of the fights. You'd be right in the ring watching these guys fight. And you'd be like, "Yeah, I like that guy. I like this guy. I like that guy. No, this guy's not ready. This guy's not ready." You know, it all depended on two matchups. If you looked at who you're trying to match them up with, did you need a, a B level fighter, a C level fighter, an A level fighter, an A plus level fighter? Was it a title shot? I mean, that's really kind of how you how you scouted it out. But it was not an easy process, man. It was it was arduous, to say the least.
1: T- tell a little bit about how the actual training environments were back then, and actually, you know, the actual schools and the academy you went to, like, and, and, and I mean that in comparison to the modern MMA world, where guys are just, you know, MMA is, is now just MMA. There's no such thing as your boxing specialist, your kickboxing specialist. If you don't know everything, you might as well not even get in the cage, because you're, just, you're not going to make it. Like, Tell us about how, like, I don't want to say unorganized, because that might not be the might word, but maybe chaotic is, is a better word for it. the actual trainings you'd have to
2: go to, to look for things to find talent i don't know if i'd use the word chaotic but i would use the word like centered if you were a brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter you were studying striking you were studying takedowns but you were focusing on your craft and being the best at your craft so much more so than everybody else that when you force them to see it swim in your sea you're, you're gonna drown yeah. right like you said now Guys have cross trained. I mean, they're good wrestlers. They're good strikers. They have good jujitsu. They have good takedown defense. You know, they have good Muay Thai. Like you, I'm seeing now this generation of people that literally grew up cross training all of those aspects. Right. You know, I think um, I'm trying to think. George St. Pierre, you know, uh, said something one time about um, about one of those guys that came to TriStar. And the guy was like twelve or thirteen when he came and started there. And that guy had already been training MMA since he was like six years old or right. seven years old. And um I think it was I think it was Rory. Was it? Yeah, Rory? that was the name I was going to yeah. say. That's the name McDonald's. that always
1: comes to mind when I think about like the original hybrid. And he was like he already had he had like fucking like twenty fights by the time he was what yeah. like twenty three or twenty four. I, like
2: I think when he first like broke into the UFC, he was the youngest fighter in the UFC, like twenty or twenty one years old. Yeah, you know, in the UFC. Um so you know that was I mean what a what a unbelievably talent sacked you know division we've got now with all these guys cross training in all these different areas and you know what's going to happen right i mean like it's only going to get better and better the specialization particularly now when you look at the high level um hold on guys i'm going to walk while we're talking here You're Good man what do you think uh, i let my dog outside
1: you want to um, pause for a second? You can go do that if you want. We can edit it. It's no big deal.
2: I think I can keep good, going. Brother. I think. Good. 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 Good, good. With the background changing a little bit, <laughs> take a walk down here. I'll give you guys a tour of the gym later. My new gym.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, man. I've been up there before, man. It's a good spot, dude. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Oh you got a New one. You got a new one now? New one. I moved. Yeah. Oh, I moved. Oh, I moved dope, man. One, yeah, man. I um, to come up and see you again.
2: Yeah. So anyway, um, I don't know specifically what we were talking about. But, um, you know, the hybridization of these guys and the fact that they are so dramatically cross-trained and they have specialties and are specialists in so many different areas, that just makes a world of difference, man. Yeah. I think we're only going to see MMA getting better and better and better. You know, you see guys like Sean O'Malley and, and those guys that are just, you know.
0: Shout out to the Sugar Show.
2: Yeah, yeah. man, right? And, I mean, what is he,
0: 24 years old? Kid, I don't even want to think about it. And, and like kid. and like you also got guys like Chase Hooper, even younger. I think he was 19 when he Nine. entered the hey, UFC. He just
1: turned 20. He just turned 20. Just just turned 20.
0: Phenomenal. Phenomenal
2: yeah. grappling. He just
1: lost to Caceres this weekend, but it was still a good fight.
2: Yeah. What did you guys think about them matching up with Caceres? I thought that was probably not a good idea.
1: Yeah, you know what's really funny you bring that up because um uh I was I was at I was at a bar watching the fight with Matt Arroyo because um the the winner of that fight was prompted to probably fight billy billy q and i can't remember the damn matchmaker's name for the ufc because i'm gonna sound stupid now i can't think of his damn name but anyway the matchmaker from the ufc was talking to matt and they were actually texting each other and and matt he told me that that they were they didn't you know it's unfortunate because we're in an age now where you just gotta put fights out there you know what i'm talking about post-covid if you want to fight you gotta get a fight you know so they didn't want to put um Chase Hooper against Casares because they didn't want to give him that much to cut off because they want to try to keep him around for a while. They want to try to, you know, code him and and and, and put him up the ranks correctly. And they didn't want to give give him Billy either because they didn't like they didn't like the idea of Billy because Billy's a brawler and, and a tough and tough bastard. They you know they didn't really have him have him go after that fight. But like I I I mean, the kid did well, man. Like Casares is a tough fighter. Man. He's just he's so weird on, on Orthodox.
2: Yeah, well, here's the problem. Caceres has been around forever. He's yes. experienced, right? And I don't care how talented you are. Experience means a lot, and it plays a lot more into fights than you think it does. Yes. You know what I mean? Just not putting yourself in situations. Um, you know, I, he had the right game plan to fight. Um, it just... <laughs> I, I think it's a... that's a, You know, you, you run this fine line of not protecting fighters right. and also, you know, bringing them up properly. And that's the hard part is, you know, can you... Bring guys in and 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 not protect them, but at the same time, make sure that you know you're grooming them for what they ultimately can be. Because you can ruin a guy's career early if you put him in the wrong mouth,
1: especially a young kid like 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 Chase Hooper. Like, you know,
2: yeah, man, like super super talented guy. But you know, at the same time, you got to make sure that um, you got to make sure that you're bringing this guy up properly and giving him the right matchups and letting him grow. You know, yeah.
0: so for me, I think. I, I, for me, uh, going into the fight, I know Caceres was coming off of a like a first round submission against Kron and Kron's debut. Yes. Uh, and I know, like from talking with him, I'm, I'm I if I remember correctly, I think he's only a brown belt, but he's one of those brown belts that's just been training for like his entire life. He was like he said, told me he had two. He's like he had two jobs, like jujitsu coach and then UFC fighter. Right. Like so I figured that the ground would play a little bit more. I figured like we'd see like possibly a submission finish from right. Cooper. But yeah, I think you're, you're right in the experience thing. Like you, you're just, you're dealing with a guy who's had more at, at bats. And I don't you think don't, that, I don't think that match plays the same way. If you give chase yeah. another like five fights to get his, uh his beak wet in the UFC. But I thought like both of them did really well. I don't think this was a knock against anybody.
2: No, I, I don't think he was outclassed or anything. I think it was just – it's a tough fight. You, you run the risk of people saying you're protecting this guy, and they're not protecting him, and there's a big difference. You have to groom talent. You really do. I don't think that's what – a lot of people don't understand that, hey, we're, we're not protecting this guy. We're grooming him and giving him appropriate level matchups to let him grow as a fighter.
0: There, were, there were fighters that were closer to his – level that wouldn't have seemed like they're just feeding him cans. I I will say that. And Caceres was probably the biggest jump he's had so far. But it's a big jump. And it's not just a big jump. I'm not sure that their skill
2: level is so disparate, but their experience level is disparate.
1: Yeah, that makes a big difference. Like Cassaris has been in the UFC for 10 years. And like if you're able to if you're able to keep your job in the UFC for 10 years, like there's a reason why you're able to do that. It's because you understand how to win and how to be exciting and and, and keep yourself employed cuz that's tough to fucking do, especially in, in in modern days when there's so many killers yeah. wanting to
0: come up. And and go Wade to your point about you don't want to have this image of being fed like easy easy fights for your first like 10 I think two examples that oh, these are both guys that might beat the shit out of me if I ever see them, but uh, Dylan Dennis and AJ Agazarm have have had that accusation thrown at them quite a bit since they started their MMA careers. Of like these high level jujitsu guys with a ton of experience are being fed guys that are not on the same level as them in the ground, and it's uh, it's affected how they're viewed by fans. I think quite a bit. But listen, Kevin, who is on their level on the ground? That's yeah, a, no yeah that's what I mean. I mean <laughs>
2: – You know, it, it, listen, here's the problem. It, if you know you're going to fight a Dylan Danis, if you're going to fight an Adrian, A.J. Agazon, what do you – you know, you should know that, all right, I've got to control the takedown. If you can't control the takedown or where the fight's fought, then you're not going to win anyway. Right. So, you know, it, it, again, like, you know, is Caseras better on the ground than Hooper? No, he's not. But at the same time, like, he controlled a lot of times where they fought.
0: Exactly. There And there are guys like that that can, that can bridge that gap. Like Holloway is not a black belt. No. But he is a black belt in every other aspect, in, in striking, just in terms of being able to pick his shots, keep the fight where it wants to be. His takedown defense, I think, is just astronomical. I can't come up with the numbers in my head right now. But everyone when T, him and T-City fought, everyone assumed T-City would be bringing it to the ground. He wasn't really able to. And I think Holloway said it best, like a, a black belt turns into a brown belt and then continuously loses ranks the more you hit him. You know, like that's that you lose your you lose that the longer a fight goes on.
2: That That's a fact. I, I, yeah, you, you know, you hit a black belt. He's a purple belt really quickly. <laughs> Real quick. Yeah.
0: And, you know, in like
1: it it doesn't take long particularly like in and the idea of belt ranks for MMA fighters is a bit skewed because like you know from a jiu-jitsu point of view like i don't we not you know as a jiu-jitsu coach like i don't care how good of a fighter you are unless you sincerely 100% dedicate yourself to get a black belt i don't care how many wins you have in the ufc you're not getting your black belt because it's a different philosophy you know I mean, it's a different it's a different point of motivation and commitment to get that black belt it's about more than just being good at jiu-jitsu like so when you think of a guy like like max holloway like you know he's been training jiu through mma for you know you know over a decade now and just getting prepared for his mma career so the idea of saying that like you know he's not a black belt is a little bit you know it's a little bit different because he might not be a, da- a black belt in his ability to attack but I guarantee you, he's a like black belt ability to not get attacked, particularly when he's have someone on the ground. When you incorporate ground and pound, and just aware of all of where submissions are coming from, and positions, and sweeps, and all this stuff like that.
2: But I, I'd have to I'd have to look at his record. But I can't recall him being submitted. No, I don't think so either. I mean, if he has, has been once, maybe.
1: Maybe, I maybe, uh, maybe, uh, what's his name? Might have got him once. I think I forget his name. The. Uh, it's not it's not been prevalent
2: it's not been prevalent no it, no no
0: no not at all was, early on in his career problem really like,
2: you know, at right. all you know, and then you, you flip that and you say okay you got a guy who's who is legitimate, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt like a sun Sal, right and he never he never even attempts to take the fights to the ground right. you know he, he doesn't take the fight i mean you know, look at his fight with um uh with uh, cody the other night he never even attempted to take the fight to the ground you know why? I don't. I don't. I don't understand that. You know, and you take a you take a fantastic, uh, uh, you know Brazilian jiu jitsu practitioner like Damian Maya. When he got away from his jiu jitsu for a little while, his losses started stacking up, right. and he realized like, hey, all right, well, I do need to, to have striking. I do need to have takedowns and takedown defense, but I also need to be able to incorporate this game. And I mean, Maya is dangerous. He's a dangerous dude.
1: I think Damian Maya is a unique. Uh, jiu-jitsu practitioner in the sense that he has been able to 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 use real pure jiu-jitsu sport jiu-jitsu style jiu-jitsu and be extremely effective at it in in mma and i say that in this regard like you know, I think a lot of times when we talk about the difference between sport jiu-jitsu and MMA jiu-jitsu, we talk about the ability to understand how to not just control opponent and advance the position, but be able to control opponent and continually do, j- do damage and posture up and be able to inflict punches and stuff like that. And there's a little bit of difference to that. Like if I want to hold somebody down with a with a, with a cross face or with a head and arm or whatever, and then advance the position in the mount, work around and take the back, it's very different than if I want to hold someone down and posture up and still be able to do damage to him. And I think Maya is. I mean, I can't think of anyone aside from like you know fucking Hickson or someone like that on that regard that's been as effective at MMA, pure MMA, in a um, in an in, a, in, a, in a, or I'm sorry, at jujitsu, pure jujitsu, in an MMA status, better than better than fucking Damian Maya's.
2: Yeah, and that was kind of my point. Like, if you notice, when he got away from that for a little while, where he was just focusing on striking, even during his fights, right? Like, he was not having a lot of success, and and now that he's sort of like regrouped and gone back to it and realized that, like, hey, you know, I still need to keep my my jujitsu roots. I mean, he's a dangerous guy. You know, he's he he's right up there. He's he's the perennial top ten guy just because of his well-rounded nature. You know, he's got a fantastic way that he fights. So, um, I'm a big Damien Byun fan. I like I like Damien a lot.
0: And How I mean, much? Like, and I mean, we saw a lot of that skill in uh, his fight against Askren. You know, yeah. where Askren was definitely on top, but Damian was able to keep threatening submissions from the bottom, just like stay in there, move his hips. It it's it is a guy who's taken jiu-jitsu almost as far as it can go in MMA. You feel like when you watch him roll around on the ground. Yes.
2: Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. If you look, you know, and the thing about that fight too was. Ben had a smart game plan. Ben was basically going taking the last minute of the round and taking him down and not giving Damien a lot of time. So that takedown scored, but he wasn't giving Damien a lot of time to work on the map. And the round that he ended up getting submitted, he took him down with about two and a half, two, two, two and a half minutes left in that round. And that's just too long to give Damien on the ground. You know, it it just, the the bell, you know, the bell wasn't ringing to save you and, and it just gave him too much time to work. And so I think, as Askren's confidence built during that, he ended up shooting that takedown earlier in the round than he should have, and that that put him on the ground for too long. You know, if I was in his corner, I'd have been like, yeah, man, I'll be yelling when there's a minute left in the round for the takedown, you know, like... Win the round. Yeah, we'll just through. win the round, like score yeah. with the takedown, survive on top, inflict a few punches and strikes, and and yeah. and maybe advance position a little bit if you can, but let's not let him swim in that seat too long, you know?
1: You know, another thing I think about when I think about Damian Maya is how beautifully simple his jiu is like if you watch him he's not doing anything very complicated he's in half guard he comes up for that single leg which is amazing he fucking he sweeps you down he passes your guard with a little knee knee weave and he takes your back like and it's it's amazing to me to watch how basic and simple his jiu plan is but how utterly uh you know successful it is and effective it is what do you think about um the differences between you know sport jiu-jitsu and you know jiu-jitsu that we do in the gym to try to fool each other as high level black belts versus what you do in the uh arena of mma or in self-defense like it's it, in that simplistic funnel it does you don't have to funnel off into the more advanced techniques
2: yeah i mean i think again the problem with jiu-jitsu uh, you know or sport jiu-jitsu in a fight is that the counter to a lot of things is punch them in the face right, right? so being able to cover your head being able to, to, you know, and that's why that's why half guard is I think so successful in MMA is because you can actually hide yourself underneath your opponent. Right. You know, being in full guard and, and being exposed and letting them posture up or not even letting them posture up, then breaking posture up and being able to strike from full guard, it's tough to defend that. Even if you have good wrist control, you're not gonna control the wrist for the entire time. And those elbows and those punches and et cetera are going to come down. You know, I think half guard is a is a fantastic, you know uh, uh, <laughs> utilization of a sport aspect that can be adapted for MMA because of your ability to hide underneath them. I mean Rodrigo Nogueira, he showed, you know, like, and you can have a really effective bottom half guard game and turn it into a top half guard game that is destructive. He did yeah. not get hit a lot on the bottom because he played, you know, a lot of half guard.
1: Yeah, there's that fucking Tucked his head underneath, swim underneath the leg, sweep through, come up for the single leg. And it's just basic like stuff, literally stuff you learn. You know, I teach my my day one wipeouts. You know, you know, you know, like yeah. beginning stage wipeouts. And I, I tell these guys all the time when I'm teaching this, I'm like, I'm gonna show you this, and like you're gonna want to learn some other crazy things, <laughs> but I'm gonna tell you, like, this is what's gonna work for you against the highest levels in some regard, and it's p- particularly in an actual self-defense situation where you're trying to protect yourself.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it goes back to, like you said, feeding fundamentals and funneling fundamentals down the the pipe because look at Roger Gracie. Look at what Roger Gracie does when he competes. Like, basic – I mean, look what he did to chet Yes. I mean, just –
1: I I think of Roger Gracie and I think of, you know, that cross-collar choke. I can't think of too many other – uh, submissions that are just so it's as unstoppable of that against anyone i went back in the day when he finished literally i think it was like he was in the world he finished like eight competitors the same exactly took him down swept them passed their guard took their back took their back or took to the mount cross collar so uh, who's next bring on the next guy you know what i mean one after the other you know marcelo garcia's guillotine's up there too but like i can't think of too many people that, that have mastered a, t- a technique to that high level of mastery
2: i think i misheard you there did you say roger Gracie took somebody down <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point
1: i will tell you this though like that that son of a bitch is probably one of the toughest people i've ever seen to get taken down like he yeah it's amazing he has that he's so strong so tall and he just stands there in that kind of judo kind of presence and, and it just gives you the single like he doesn't even care he just look at you to blast you through and gets his grips it's it's watching him against that Puchecha matches
0: it would it would Amazing. matter absolutely zero. He could kill me anyway, but if I think if I ever do meet Hodger in person, I'd be unable to wear any sort of like jacket around him. You know, I probably just want to like wear a like tank top or something. Just cuz you know, I don't want to get if he if he, he if he beats me up, I don't want it to be with a cross collar choke just cuz I've heard his his grips are so strong.
2: So his- <laughs> Just, just so that I understand you correctly, what you're saying is, if you ever meet Roger Grace, you're gonna wear as little clothing as possible. <laughs> That's what I heard
0: too. That's what I, I mean, heard too. Hey, <laughs> I mean, hey, you know, read into it what you want, man. I'm just looking out for my neck. <laughs> hey, you, oh, do you, I'm, I, I'm you do you, man. I'm, I'm all about it. I like it. I like it. Well, okay. Now, I, I wanted to, clear, I wanted to get through this uh, before we run out of time, just because it's such a, an interesting idea. So you're. Your collegiate wrestler, D one. You you leave the you leave academia. At what point in your life does ATT come in?
2: So I started training. Uh, I graduated college in 1991, um, Came back to Florida. I was a nursing home administrator. Uh, spent a couple of years trying to like figure out what I was going to do professionally. Um, got into hospital administration. Um, was just missing terribly like having something to do i was coaching a high school you know wrestling team one of my buddies was head coach i was helping him uh i would go to practices just just to do something to sweat you know like to me everything else was boring like going and lifting weights going and you know it's just boring um so i was looking for something to do i was terribly just out of shape and i was terribly missing you know an outlet um so i started going around to these martial arts schools trying to find like a martial art that i could do and literally, I would just take these guys down. i go to these Aikido and Taekwondo and Hapkido you know, and whatever school. And, and i take these guys down, and I'm just like, oh, this is pathetic. Like, this is horrible, you know? Um, so anyway, uh, I was in a karate school. Actually, it was Roger Crawl's karate school. Uh, Roger Crawl uh, is a black belt American top team now. He manages a lot of guys. a good striking coach. Um, I was in his school, and this guy named Alex Davis, um, which if you ever see the UFC – of the time when they've got somebody in the ring translating English to Portuguese or Portuguese to English, it's him. Um, He also manages 40, 41 UFC fighters, um, including, you know, I I mean, he's got a list of them. Let's put it that way. They're all, you know, he's got a lot, a lot of guys in there. Um, But anyway, uh, Alex kept bugging me. Hey, man, come try jiu-jitsu, come try jiu-jitsu, come try jiu-jitsu. And I was like, man, I've tried all this crap. They're horrible. Like, I just take them down. The fight's over. And he's like, no, these guys want you to take them down. And I was like, what? He's like, they want you to fight on the ground. And I was like, listen, man, if I go do this, will you shut the hell up? Will you shut up? And he said, yeah. So one day I went over. It was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We go over to this gym, and I walk in, and this guy's like 5'9", 5'10", maybe 175, 180 pounds, you know, typical, like, you know, really – You know, jovial Brazil. Oh man, how are you? You know, like, you know, and uh, do you you want to grapple? You know, yeah, man, let's grapple. He's like, where you want to start? I was like, let's start on the feet. He's like, okay. So, literally 10 seconds in, I take him down, and the next thing I know, they're waking me up. (laughs) And and I was like, I was like, what happened? He's like, oh man, you shoot a beautiful shot, but uh, I catch what we call a guillotine and I choke, and and you know what happened, you go out. I was like, "All right," and he's like, uh, "You want to go again?" I was like, "Yeah, man." And I'm kind of thinking in the back of my mind, "What? Like he didn't choke me out? You know yeah. what I mean?" You, you, I, I must know- hit.
1: What the hell happened? I must have hit my head or something like I, that.
2: Yeah, I was thinking like, I don't think I believe that, right? So, you know, I take him down again, like instantaneously, and the next thing I know, they're waking me up, you <laughs> know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'm looking up, and, and he's like, "Yo, man, like you have to tap." <laughs> <laughs> And I, I don't like, want, I
0: don't want to kill you, brother.
2: <laughs> but, so as a collegiate wrestler, like especially in the Big 10, I'm used to a headlock that's really uncomfortable. Right. I'm used to positions where people are putting shitload of pressure on you and you don't think about passing out. You don't have an outlet. You, there is no tapping in wrestling unless you pin yourself, right? right. And, and even then that's that that's worse than getting passed out. Right. So I, I you know, he's like, "Oh, you have to you know." I'm like, "Okay, man, I didn't know I was in trouble." You know, he's like, "Listen, this is called a triangle choke. Like you take me down, I bring my leg up, I put it here, I choke you out. You know, you want to go again? I was like, yeah, let's go again. And literally, I was unconscious in another thirty seconds or so. Jesus! So I, wake up, I wake up, and he's freaking out on me. He's like screaming at me, you know, oh Jesus Christ, you have to tap. What is wrong with you? You know, like you have to tap. You know, and I was, I was literally laying on the ground. I looked up at him and I go, I know, am I the one who just got choked out? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, well, what the hell are you screaming at me for? <laughs> And um and he's like jujitsu six o'clock tonight. I was like I'll be there, and that's how I started training jiu-jitsu. I went there and just got my ass kicked so many times, you know. Just out of curiosity, was that was that instructor Laboria? No, it was not. It was not. It was a guy named Alvaro Liao. I think he's in Colorado now. Um, no, I, I met Laborio. Um, to go back to Kevin's question, I was training at a place under Marcelo and Conan Silvera up in. Um, so I got my. I got my blue belt um, there from Alvaro. Actually, I trained there for like maybe a year, year and a half, and I got my blue belt. Then I went and trained under Minotaro. I trained under Nagara, and I got my purple belt from Naguera. And then I found out about this Boca black belt. And at that time, Nagara was starting to get ready to fight. Like he was trying to gear a little more towards fighting. So I would train with him a lot. I worked with him a lot on wrestling. I cornered him for his first rings fight, his first ADCC, his first pride fight. Cornered him for, for a lot of that stuff. Um, and I, I was, for lack of a better term, his wrestling coach. He was my jujitsu coach. But uh Marcelo and Conan Silvera had academies, and we went and trained at Boca Black Belt Academy. And literally, this place was 30 by 30. Like, I mean, you're talking a small place, right? And in that room, right now, I, I would say there's probably, that came out of that room, 19 or 20 UFC veterans that came out of that room. I mean, on the mat at any given time, there was – um there was uh, Nogueira and Wilson govey and Tiago Alves and um uh Thiago Silva um uh who else was there at the time uh, I'm trying to think of the early early guys that were there Pablo Popovich Dustin Dennis um uh, uh Jeff Munson was in and out of there Frank Mir um like all these guys that come in this room and I we always say there was more ass kicking in that you know, 900 square feet of gym than any place you've ever been in your life. Um, Fernando Margarita was in there. I don't know if you guys remember him or not from Jitsu. I mean, he was a, a world-class jitsu guy. Um, there were just so many good guys and I met Laborio. Laborio came in there one day and, uh, the, the first time I ever rolled with Laborio, um, uh, I, I, I hit a sleeve choke on him. You know what some people refer to as the, the E word choke. Um, we don't use that word, but, um, Anyway, uh, I, I, came to train with him, you know, afterwards and we met with Dan and Laborio and everybody kind of got together and I found the original location for American top team and coconut Creek, which was sort of centered where everybody could get to it right off of major through fair. We built that, put a weight room in it, put a bunch of mats in there. And then, um, not too many years ago, they, they bought and built their own building on a big, you know, uh, property down. there. It's a 40,000 square foot building. It's fantastic. But, um, yeah, we were. You know, I guess you'd say I was a founding member. I was an early, early guy in forming and building and and you know growing that academy. It was fantastic. That's awesome, man. But Saturday morning rolls at uh, Saturday morning rolls. Uh, they had a high belt roll on Saturday mornings, ten o'clock. There would be sixteen to twenty black belts and probably another twenty to thirty brown belts on there for every single Saturday morning. It was it was amazing, and you never knew who was going to show up. I walk in there one morning, and Tito Ortiz is there, and you know, a bunch of guys are there that you just, you know, Mark Coleman, all these guys are in there just working out, you know, coming to train jujitsu. Because at that time, you know, you're talking 2001, 2002, 2003, Black folks were still not, you know, common to find. But there we had Parampina and Laborio and um, uh, Tuberon, you know, Shark. And uh, you had so many of these different guys. There was a lot of Pablo Popovich and I mean, there were so many good Good, Hanato Tavares, all these guys, all these black belts on the mat. There It was amazing. I mean, there was the the, the talent level was deep. That was a deep pool.
1: Tell me, so I I I always want to ask this. I always talk about. I always want to get into this when I talk to guys that are ATT black belts that came to ATT that trained with Laborio, been around Laborio, and, and and experienced his greatness because Laborio again is one of those guys. It's like a mythical beast. You know, you know, we don't. You, you hear his name. And, you know, it, it predates the YouTube, it predates any 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 kind of internet, you know, media and multi-set, you know, whatever, you know, social media and all these other things like that. You just hear stories. And you always say, that can't be true. Like, you can't be that good. You can't be that big of a badass. Like, tell, tell us a little bit about what you think. And first of all, tell us if you, if you agree with that, with that narrative and tell us about what you think are some of the things that made him so good as a competitor and and, and maybe even so good as a, as a coach to be able to crank out that much, that much talent.
2: So, yeah, he's to me, I mean, I've rolled with, I think I've rolled with pretty much everybody in the game and, you know, (laughs) to me, like he, he's beyond reproach as far as like the best, like it's, it's him and then everybody else. I mean, I can tell you, like, I, I won't. I'm not going to get into naming names, but there are, you know, at at an ATT pro practice, there are two guys who are in the top 10 of the UFC. Okay. And Laborio won't pair them together because neither of them have an off switch. Okay. And he knows it's going to be a problem. And one day this has sort of been building and they start fighting with each other, arguing about, they're going to go, they're going to go, whatever Laborio tells them, no. And they start calling Laborio. One of them, one of them started calling Laborio names. Laborio went in the cage Locked a cage and within a minute and a half, he had dismantled a guy who was in the top ten of the UFC. I mean, within a minute and a half, I'm talking full on like it was a fight, and he had dismantled him like really, really quickly. And he got out and he called the other guy, and the other guy's like, "I didn't say anything, a word, you know? Like, I, what? Why? You know? Like, and and Laborio kind of calmed down a little bit, but I've seen like guys who, you know, if you were to name a really, really high level jujitsu guy. I've seen them come into the room there and have their way until Laborio takes his shirt off and walks in and just, I mean, literally, I've seen him tap guys that were literally running their way through the room. He walks on, takes his shirt off, tap, two minutes later, tap, another minute later, tap, you know, and I've seen those guys literally go to tears. Like I'm talking really high level guys that he just dismantles. And I think what makes him so good is he has an understanding of what he is and how he does it. And literally if he's demonstrating a move on you or he's doing the move, you could not slide a credit card between his body and yours. The amount of space that he does not give you, the amount of space that he takes from you, the placement. I mean, one thing that he was really big on, and, and I really try to focus on in teaching as well, and, I, and I'm not comparing myself to him. I, I I'd be lucky to ever be anywhere near as good as he is. But as far as teaching, he was always able to break things down to a concept, right? And I've really tried to do that. Hey, uh, an Americana works. why? It works because our shoulder functions this way, and inside of that shoulder joint, these things happen, and he breaks it down anatomically, physiologically, and then motion, right? Which is what I try to do. Why does an arm bar work? Well, we're hyperextending the elbow beyond the level that it's physically capable of going. And how do we do that? And what are the mechanics of doing that? and and then, why is that important and where can it be done from there? You know, I, I, I said a long time ago and I use the saying all the time. If you teach somebody an arm bar, you teach them an arm bar. If you teach somebody how an arm bar works, you teach them how to get it from anywhere. And that's true. You know, you start seeing when you understand the concept of how something works. you see that position from everywhere? versus you learn how to do an armbar from the top, you learn an armbar from the top. When you learn how an armbar works, you start seeing that position everywhere. You start seeing it. Oh, I could hit an armbar from here. I could get an armbar from there. And I love that with my kids. You know, I have a 13-year-old girl that trains under me right now. Uh, I think you met her, Kevin. But um, she is going to be the next big thing in jiu-jitsu, women's jiu-jitsu. Right now, I mean, I put her in the blue belt division at the last COPA in the 18- to 40-year-old women's division, and she smoked it. Like she's 13 years old and she does not have, I mean, she submitted the, the kids Pan American champion. She submitted the kids, um, us national jiu-jitsu champion. Like she gets it and she gets it because she's like, Hey, couldn't I hit this from there? Couldn't I hit that? You know, she, she understands and she started to plug in those concepts. And, you know, I, I see that happening with a lot of adults too. Like they start plugging in and they understand that, Hey, I'm not looking for an arm bar. I'm looking for the motion and the mechanics and the physiology of an arm bar from different positions. Yeah, and no, I think I- Going back to your question, that's what Laboria was so good at explaining and breaking down why something works physiologically, anatomically, functionally, and how to get there. And I think the guys that can do that are successful instructors. You know, they 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 make a difference in people's jujitsu lives. Yeah,
1: that's that's. And that's that's why i was talking about that's why i love jujitsu so much man and, and it's such a big part of my life it's so much more than just teaching somebody how to do an arm bar teaching somebody how to do a fucking leg lock or teaching somebody how to do a triangle choke it's it's the idea of understanding that this art that we do is beautiful and there's 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 poetry to it and there's 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 movements involved in it that make it real and make it alive and when you start to understand that you realize it's more about just the pieces that are involved it's about the art its entirety and then it's different like me and you as black belts we can kind of get that because we've been there we've been through it we've you know we've toiled with it and we've we've spent you know the majority of our lifetimes like trying to decipher this one thing that we love and this thing we're passionate about but like it's it, when, when you get to that realization it's, it's such a beautiful thing and you realize jiu-jitsu is so much more than just you know being a badass and learn how to submit somebody it's learning how all these concepts come together I mean, that was awesome dude that really yeah, was good
2: i think that, that literally being a badass is like the lowest priority point in jiu-jitsu period you yeah. know there are plenty of guys who are really good jiu-jitsu practitioners that can't teach but if right. you're a jiu practitioner and you, and you can also teach like, man, you know, you really make a difference. I, I literally, there are nights I leave the gym and I cry. Mm-hmm. I just drive in the car and I cry about, you know, like the success that people have had, or, you know, I've got students who are on the autism spectrum and they come in and they're just one person. And then a year later, they're, they're just somebody just different. You know, I have parents say stuff to me that literally I just break down and cry sometimes, you know, that's mm-hmm. like, to me, like that's, that's what really makes a difference to me in jujitsu and watching somebody who, who goes from like a, an ill, confident, um, uh, uncertain, uh, person who, who, who has zero, you know, ability to sort of translate themselves into anything to watch them transform into somebody that has self-confidence that can carry themselves, that can conduct them because it really does carry through into all kinds of different forms of life. You know, like if you're confident in jujitsu, and you understand jujitsu, I think it carries over into so many aspects of life, particularly with kids and stuff like that, you know?
1: I I say that all the time. Like, as much as I enjoy working with fighters and as much as I enjoy working with, like, world-class, you know, high-level athletes and and seeing them compete and watching them go to that next level, like, I honestly believe that I get more joy out of working with guys just like you said, like that. Guys that are there that aren't the world-class athletes It didn't dominate every sport they ever played in and are here just because, like, they want to do this thing and maybe a little a get a little freaking cardio in or learn a little bit of self defense, and then watching them evolve as people people over the course of their jiu-jitsu journey and realizing that struggling and, and, and beating what it takes to, to and conquering your demons to improve in jiu-jitsu to, it just makes them so much better people i always say this like jiu-jitsu is one of the rare things in the world that will take the strong and make them meek and take the weak and give them confidence and give them strength man there's not too many people there's not too many things in the world that could do that
0: I mean, if my I, my uh my coach Ed, um, I, the guy who gave me my blue belt i think he summed it up for me best when he he put it in terms i could understand and that's that jujitsu is like a for the force in star wars you know it's this invisible energy that surrounds you penetrates you and helps bind everything together and you carry it with you no matter what it's not a thing you carry in your pocket it's in your your soul and your body and you you know you can use it to exert Uh, your will over someone trying to dominate you you know and you can defend yourself it's it's like it's one of the most powerful things ever you know yeah it really it really is you know um
2: marcelo silvera used to say that uh you know jiu-jitsu if you wanted to find jiu-jitsu in its essence it's two people fighting over the last loaf of bread on earth somebody's gonna eat sandwiches (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, that's a good it's one true, man. It's
2: it's good. So true it's like you know it's like really if that's what it came down to right you know it's 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 man it's you and one other person and there's a loaf of bread right you're gonna eat half the loaf and they're gonna eat half the loaf or somebody's gonna make sandwiches right <laughs> <laughs> you know? and it, it's true man it's so true I, I i don't think you know i have a lot of veterans that train with me that like literally their their respective You know, spouse or or significant other will call me and be like, "Make sure that they're in there this week, right?" You know, my wife will literally be like, "You need to go train." And now that I have my own academy, it's not so bad, you know. But you know, there will be times where she just look at me, she's like, "Go train because you're miserable," you know. (laughs) Get out of my face. (laughs) And make you a better human being, right? You know. And and man, I'll tell you what, my wife started training at at at, you know fifty years old two years ago, man, and she is killing it. She's killing it, bro. I
1: I rolled your wife last time I was up there, man.
2: She's not bad. She's not no, bad. She's got a good teacher. <laughs> yeah, she's she, she got built-in private lessons. That's the thing, you know. <laughs> so, but, um, but there's one thing, uh, Kevin. Where do you train, Kevin Bradley? Where do you train?
0: Oh, I um, I tra- I train at two different schools right now. I live in um in Jersey, South okay. Jersey, so I'm training at the Hive Martial Arts Academy in uh, Manahawk. And, uh, used to Chris Noonan's the black belt over there. Okay. But I got my black. I got my blue belt. Jesus. I got my blue belt from a guy named Ed Berberich in uh, Connecticut. He's under Marcio Stambowski. Okay. Yeah. So that's like I. I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, Ed helped me get started in jiu-jitsu when I was around college, and uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a wild ride. You how know? long have you been training? How long you been training total, Kevin? I for, I started. Okay. So I've been. I gotta do the math. I've been out of college. Like I, I, did a year of grad school, and I'm now a year and a half of grad school, like a junior year. So maybe four and a half years coming up on five ish. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a one stripe blue belt, and uh, just about everybody else that does this sport can kick my ass, but I make up for it by writing about
2: it. <laughs> I, 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 hey, you know, you know who can't kick your ass? Who? People that don't train.
0: When yeah, I've your seen. wife can already kick my ass. I can tell. No, 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 no. <laughs> hey, hey,
2: you know I have a white belt. She she was saying once to me one night, um, and, and she's uh, she's a, she's a fantastic person. Trains with. She's a white belt. She has got a couple stripes, but we had a bunch of all the white belts come in. She's always sort of like, I don't think I'm getting any better. I don't whatever. Well, we had an influx of new students come in, and she's on the mat, and I'm just watching her dismantle all these people who have very little to no training. So afterwards, her husband sends me a screenshot of a, a conversation they had, and um, she says, man, there was a whole bunch of new white belts in the room tonight, and it was like I have freaking superpowers. And wow. I, was like, I was like, that's jiu-jitsu. That's <laughs>
1: jiu-jitsu,
2: right? Because I don't care who you are. If you don't train and you don't understand it, you know, like – you come in and, and, and you know, people that, that don't look the part are going to kick your butt. You know, they have superpowers. They really do. And jiu is a superpower if you use it correctly and you understand it, you know.
1: You 100%, know? man. I say that all the time, man. I believe it. I've used jiu plenty of times in situations where I had to protect myself or you know, working on the bars and shit like that. And it is a fucking superpower. The <laughs> <An laughs> yeah. non-trained person just has no chance. Yep.
2: And the nice thing is, this, it's a gentle superpower you can do without having to hurt somebody else if you don't have to.
1: That's the that's the best thing. But I, I wrote that I wrote an article. You should read; it. it's pretty good. I wrote an article about uh, police officers, mandatory police, mandatory uh, training for police officers and in, uh, in BJJ. And I talked a lot about that, how it's a, a gentle uh, form of uh, restraint. Did was of you write that
2: uh, post the George Floyd tragedy, or was that prior to? Uh,
1: no, I wrote it after. after. I wrote it. I wrote it. I wrote it two days ago, just because yeah. I was in my mind and I figured, you know. I might not have a lot of real knowledge and then I can talk shit about things. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I can also offer some realistic, you know, expert opinions on a something that might other, make a difference.
0: A lot of other black belts are are doing similar things. Like you're seeing like my coach Chris, he's he's offering like free lessons to certain law enforcement, you know, in the area up to Blue Belt, just so people can have a better idea of what to do and their responsibilities on the ground. A lot of a lot of other places are doing the same thing. And uh yeah, there's, okay. there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of feelings about it, but I think people putting themselves out there trying to add something to the conversation and doing good is always a good thing, you know. And I think that jujitsu transforms people, so that's that's all good thing.
2: Getting people, getting people, just trying to get other people to be better people, right? That's, it, the, that's, that's the key, right? It's just like oh, it, it, it take. So I don't think jujitsu is going to take a shitty person and make them a good person. But I do think it will take a marginal person and teach them some humility and maybe some confidence, and that kind of can be the determining factor in, like, which way they fall. And then if you take, you know, if you take a cop who, who takes a power situation or is a power-hungry person and you teach them that they can be powerful and yet humble at the same time or they can be powerful and yet gentle, it's a big difference, man. I think it's way more impressive to be powerful and gentle than it is to be powerful.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent, dude. Like and that was that was the one of the major premises of my article was the, it was the psychological benefits of it. And you know, yeah, yeah, you have this great superpower to be able to protect yourself and 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 use non lethal restraints and long lethal uh, ways to subdue an opponent. But it's the, the 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 personal journey, the psychological journey that 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 you know, like you said, I agree with you too. Like if you're a dick, you're a dick. There ain't nothing you can do. But I know a lot of black belts that are fucking dicks. You know what I mean? Like I, I wish I didn't, but there are some black belts out there that don't
0: think the same way we do and it's unfortunate so if you're a piece of shit you're a piece of shit hey yeah i've I've been doing this like you know before i started jujitsu i was just a scumbag and for a few years in i'm still a scumbag you know (laughs) (laughs) but you're only a blue belt so there's hope that's true i have the i have the opportunity to become an even bigger scumbag down the line so (laughs) I, i think
2: you know i put out a video um like right after that happened i think it was two or three days afterwards about. Wait, do
1: me a favor, man. I love you. I'm seriously about to piss my pants. You gotta get like you can keep talking if you want to. Hold on, give me give me two seconds and we'll cut this because I want to keep talking to you. But if I don't go pee, I'm gonna pee on my pee yeah, myself. I was looking for I was looking at you text, text, like, like 10 minutes ago. Like I'm about to piss my pants, and I'm loving this. I'll be right back, man.
0: Ah, <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks, man. Uh I'll, we cut here. I'll mark that down. Just so are, are we on cut back? here? Yeah, we're on cut. Yeah, right. so I can we... eat a little popcorn without being too rude. Oh, go for it, man. <laughs> Ever try this stuff? Oh, yeah, my mom has that,
2: dude. That is the best popcorn. Like, it's just a little sea salt and it's just plain non GMO, non you know, non uh genetically modified popcorn. I love it, man. I mean, I like... eat
0: Dude, I've gained like 15 pounds since quarantine started. So, I mean, I got to do some. Well, here's the thing is right before, like the day before things started getting really bad, I did the New Jersey Fed uh, BJJ tournament and I cut down to like 150 from 165. And then after that, I ate tiramisu every day and didn't do shit. And I thought, I'll just get back in the mats and go to the gym. And then quarantine hit and I'm not (laughs) – I'm just sitting here with too much – Ice cream. Oh my god! Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> back again. You look so happy. Oh
1: man, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin was laughing at me. I could see him in the corner laughing. I've been doing the pee pee dance like, for the
0: last ten I'm minutes.
1: Like, I'm thinking we gotta
0: wrap this up, but I mean, <laughs> we, this is good shit. So I'm yeah, like, you can we kept getting good stuff. One time I was it was my birthday and I was at a running camp and we were we were I didn't use the bathroom before we left uh, for a run, and I thought, oh, we usually only go twenty minutes away. I can hold it. We end up going to a place that's an hour and a half away to run. But by the time we get there, I've stopped believing in God. <laughs> I I'm like about to I'm like if my if my little sister was here, I'd throw her off a cliff if it meant that I could just go to the bathroom. And I couldn't like by the time we got out, I pushed past everyone else in the van to get out. I for, I couldn't walk. I, my legs were like, my whole body was so fucked up. I couldn't walk. And so I hobbled over and I peed for like seven or eight minutes. (laughs) It was like, it was like my bladder was the size of like a lamp. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I felt like I was fully pregnant with a pee baby. (laughs) Oh man. Like
2: Like my uncle used to say, like, you know, it's like, you know, no, you can pee anytime you want. It's just not socially acceptable.
1: <laughs> right, exactly, 100%. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to peel over my freaking, my my, my freaking, uh, my rash guard and my, my freaking fight shorts in the corners. <laughs> there. <today>. I <could laughs> got to teach a class. I got to take a shower.
2: Kevin, where are you located at?
1: Kevin, Kevin, or, uh, or, or you know where I'm at, yeah.
0: Bradley. I'm in uh, Manahawken right now. Okay, that's New Jersey, yes? In New Jersey, yeah. Okay, and then Kevin, you're at your
2: place or where are you at?
1: I'm I, I never I didn't open my gym up because of all the COVID shit. I got lucky. I, I, I had some problems with my lease, so I didn't freaking pop up. I'm I'm going to a GTS to go teach a class for Matt. Okay. Where do you Tampa. is the
2: house that you're working out of right now or where are you?
1: Oh, I'm in my house right now. Yeah. Okay, we are yeah, talking yeah. about? No, I'm in the I'm in the studio, buddy. This is uh this is totally not a little corner of my room with a poster <laughs> hanging on the wall of my laptop. we and we have you know, we've got the jujitsu times uh South Tampa <laughs> NX studio that I've been working at. Million
0: dollar operation.
1: Exactly, exactly. Oh yeah. I know way. I just bought this microphone at Best Buy. <laughs> if,
0: you're, if you're, I know you're. Um, where where are you at right now? Florida.
2: Florida. Yeah, I'm in I'm in Melbourne, at Mike's. i in Florida. Right,
0: well, a, two
2: hours north, away from me. If
0: you're ever up north, come come swing by, man. You go, yeah. we, We'd love to have you.
1: <laughs> I tell you <laughs> what, man. You you say you want to roll with Wade Rome, until you got to fucking get a hold of that big bastard. Oh, no, I'm I'm biggest I'm human not, being I've, not ever not over. Over. I've ever touched in my life.
0: I'm not fucking touching Wade with a ten foot pole, but like you know, if you want to. Actually, you know what, Wade? There's a 10-foot pole. I might want you to touch it with me. Touch it with me. I get it. But there's this, there's this little like fucking troll piece of shit that's been texting me this entire episode. A guy I roll with Ruben Blanco, like he meddled at Worlds last year, and he's an absolute scumbag piece of shit. And he's just he texts me threats. And mean things all the time. If you can come up here and rip his head off his shoulders for me, that'd be great. Because <laughs> I can't. You can do it. it. No, he's a purple belt world's medalist. That's like like 500 pounds. I'm not touching that. <laughs> I'll,
2: I'll I'll come and rest my balls on his forehead for you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Wade. I can tell you, dude.
1: Yeah. If there's- if there's ever an opportunity when I want to have like a big bro, a big brother come have my back and teach somebody a lesson, the first call I'm making is to Wade. Bro, <laughs> who the
0: hell needs to be your big brother and look after you? Just I'm thinking pretty, the yeah. same thing. Like, who's actually got to look after you? If I could hit you with it. I could run over you with a tank, and you'd be like, "All right, brother, cool." So, like next week, we got to –
2: hey, for, for, for as long as he doesn't have to pee while you do it. Uh, <laughs> and I gotta pee, it's all done with.
1: Yeah, so well, dude, I, man, let's. We should probably get this going anyway. I gotta, I gotta go, I gotta get teaching, I
2: gotta yeah. get out to the gym. I gotta, no, go run a to it, I don't not, know. Yep, are we good to wrap this up
0: then? Yeah, no, yeah, I, don't yeah. Know, I don't know. How, I'll cut this exactly. There was a pee break, everybody, but um, what do you want? You want to do something, yeah, Kevin? You, you want to talk a I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on. This has been an incredibly enlightening and, and enjoyable episode, and of time where I think more people could afford to take a moment to to let out a sigh and laugh a little bit and uh the floor is yours if you have anything you would want to plug or bring attention to uh just go for it
2: cool well thanks for having me on guys It's, it's been fun i i enjoy doing things like this where it's more like a conversation you know and that's what i felt like you guys have done a really good job with so thanks for having me on um no, you know, my, my push has really been to just make jujitsu nasty again, you know, and by that, what I, what, what I always tell everybody is like, listen, man, you know, jujitsu is nasty, but nice at the same time. Right. And if you learn how to do things in a proper way, you can be as nasty as you want without hurting somebody else. Right. And just want to bring that, that, that sense of like, um, uh, edginess back to jujitsu that I think has been lost in, in so many ways. You know, there's so many things that are, you know, catch wrestling submissions that not, nah, you know, like that's jujitsu. And, and the fact that certain organizations outlaw and, and and ban certain moves because they favor other people or they change the definition of a takedown because it favors a certain demographic, you know, like that's where I have some of the problems with the IBJJF stuff. You know, it's like it, it, really like you're going to change the rules to modify like, you know, why did they take leg locks out? Well, because Sambo guys were doing really, really well in jujitsu tournaments, mm. right? You know, like, come on, guys. It's either jujitsu or it's not. It either involves the human body and submissions. I understand limiting some of the submissions on kids, but man, let's make jujitsu nasty again. Let's let everything go and let the chips where land where they may. You know, it is what it so, is.
0: So you heard it here first. Wade Rome wants oil checks in IBJJF tournaments. That is what I got out of this. Wait, they're not allowed? Oh no, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I oh,
2: that's what that's what I've been taking so much slack about, right? Well, your finger. That's not, a, that's not a submission. That's an introduction, Kevin. <laughs> that's
1: right. That's the first thing you do when you walk into Wade Roams. Uh, Jimmy so just sticks his finger up your butt. You that's, how, that's how we shake hands.
0: <laughs> I am out uh, disgusted on this show? So Wade, you have fully bested me today, sir. Thank you very oh. much but thanks for having me guys yeah, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Jiu Jitsu times podcast i've been your host kevin bradley joined by my co-host mr Kevin gallagher and incredibly special and nasty guest wade rome uh sir thank you again and to all of you out there i know uh these days are looking very uh, confusing but um a lot of good is happening so make sure to hold tight to those you love and remember to uh, keep out for that, uh, keep an eye out for the helpers, the people that are doing good and, uh, go out and train, you know, jujitsu is coming back. So that's another good thing that we got going on, but until next time, this has been the Jiu Jitsu times podcast. We will see you later.
2: Thanks guys.